Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. This week, I'm going solo. My wife, Rebecca, partner in Parkinson's and co-host of the podcast, will be back in the next episode. But today, we're going to continue our exploration of how writing can be used as a tool. We'll be highlighting several authors in the Parkinson's community this season on the pod. Today, we'll talk to Dave Iverson. Dave's first book is now out. It's called Winter Stars. And it's not a how-to book. And it's not even a book about Parkinson's. It's about the bond between a child and his mom. Some of it does have a bit of a Parkinson's root in that she was my first lesson, really, in what caregiving can mean because... She was a phenomenal partner to my late father, who um, had late-stage um, Parkinson's at the end and died of complications from that. And she was a, a, just such a testimony to what the importance of being there for someone can be. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can't be what she did for my dad, but maybe I can at least try to do something. And so that's what motivated it. Dave was the first host of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's podcast. For that reason and others, his voice may sound familiar. He's a founding member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, someone I respect tremendously. We caught up at a patient council meeting in New York City and recorded this interview at the headquarters of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Dave spent nearly 40 years in public radio and has produced and reported more than 20 documentary specials for PBS, including his frontline film, My Father, My Brother, and Me, which explored his family's battle with Parkinson's, and Capturing Grace, which tells the story of what happened when a group of people with Parkinson's disease joined forces with a legendary New York City dance company. At the age of 59, Dave paused his career. Well, I was at the time... uh working um, as a broadcast journalist at at the NPR station in in San Francisco, KQED. And my mom had lived independently since my dad had died for 13 years. And she was by that time in her mid-90s and had done incredibly well. But she had a rough bout with pneumonia and it became clear that she really couldn't manage on her own anymore. And I made this very quick decision, Larry, that, well, she needs help. I'm working full-time, but my life is flexible. My mom and I have always been close. I can help. That decision results in a decade of self-discovery, an odyssey that forces Dave to come face-to-face with his personal weaknesses, uncharacteristic anger, while strengthening the bond to his mother and learning to live with, learn from, and love dementia. Well, I think that part of what I learned from that experience was... um, it, it sounds sounds a bit contradictory, but part of what I felt when I moved in with my mom was this desire to still be helpful, as I think all of us feel. Um, at that point, I'd only been diagnosed for a few years, and I was still doing very well, doing well to this day, really. But I really wanted to feel like I could still be helpful. And so while some people thought, what are you doing? You're moving in to be a caregiver, and you've, you've recently been diagnosed with Parkinson's. What kind of sense does that make? For me, it actually made sense because I felt like I could make a contribution in that way. And to be honest, I felt pretty good about myself because I could do it. And and I think that's actually an important thing. And it gave us a chance to, in some ways, learn that much more about my family story, about my dad's time with Parkinson's, my older brother as well, and, and my own. Um, and so in some odd ways, it was part of, um, of, of, of extending, I guess, my family story. Having said all that, I learned an incredible amount as a caregiver. Um, 
it taught me so much. And I learned things about my strengths, but I also learned so much more about my weaknesses. It revealed them in kind of all their, all their not, not always so lovely glory. Um, and it also taught me so much about what caregiving truly entails and gave me so much respect for those who do that work as a profession. What surprised you about what you weren't so good at? Well, one of my strengths is therefore also a weakness, as is often the case. One of my strengths, I think, is to want to take charge and um, have good plans for things and kind of take control of things. That's often a really useful attribute. But not so much when you're a caregiver, because you're not in charge. You're not in control. I sometimes would say, like, I, I feel like I'm driving a car and I'm not wearing a seatbelt. And in fact, there's someone in the front seat with me tugging at the wheel. And sometimes I'm not even sure I'm in the front seat. Um, you are not in charge. And, and, and you can't be, you can think you've got a good plan, but that plan lasts for about as long as it's going to work. And sometimes that's a day. And so you, you, you learn a lot about, about letting go of some things that aren't so effective. I was also stunned at how angry I could get and how frustrated I could get. Uh, my mom had advancing dementia, and while I'd like to think I was caring and compassionate about that, sometimes I would get so frustrated and so angry at, at that and so exhausted by it. I already had some difficulties with sleep, but I was getting up three or four times a night helping her in the bathroom. Um, I, I wasn't great at dealing with that always. And that's something pretty remarkable to learn about yourself, that you have a capacity for anger and frustration that you didn't think you had. Um, and there was, that was humbling um, to fall flat on my face many times with that and to, and to then forgive myself in a way and to try to keep doing the best I could. Yeah, the, the, that's a human emotion, anger. Yeah. It goes with all the others. You're allowed to be angry. How did, you, how did you display your anger? Sometimes I would get really short. I'd get, I'd get frustrated. I would say, no, Mom, you, you did, in fact, go to church. You just don't remember. Or, no, Mom, you didn't go to law school. Um, instead of learning, as I did to extend over time, that if someone says something with dementia that's not true, your job isn't to correct them. Your job is to really hear them and to try to hear what's, what's the truth beneath the words. In my mom's case, she was a vibrant, active, incredibly independent, competent, able person. When I think she said she went to law school, I think what I learned in time was that maybe she had wanted to go to law school. And she would have made a hell of an attorney. She would have made a hell of a politician. To hear that there is something there that may not be factually true, but there's truth there. And part of our challenge then is to hear that and to be present to that person and to, and to honor that person, not get hung up about what might be factual or not. I came to realize that someone with dementia in particular, you know, we like to say you're not entitled to your own facts. You might be entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. I think actually someone who lives with dementia is entitled to their own facts. And we have to hear those and do our best to, to understand who they are. I've, I've heard that before where people, especially people who, who have images, where they see people in the backyard or soldiers or right. whatever. Right. And the key isn't to, to, 
to die that, but it's to, right. to be curious about it. Well, one time, you know, my mom, and this is not unusual, would conflate who I was. One time I walked into a room and she said, you know, David, I know you were married to someone else before you were married to me. My unhelpful response was to say, Mom, I'm your son. I'm not your husband. But in time, again, I came to understand that you know, my mom loved men. She loved my dad to pieces. Um, and I think in her view, she sort of still maybe wanted a man and, and I was available. You know, that's what that meant. It was really like, and so I, I, think, I think if we allow ourselves um, you can learn so much. And in some ways, it deepened my relationship with my mom. I, I gained so much from that and from the remarkable women who helped me because I could still go to work. We had the resources to have someone there during the day so I could work and I'd come back and be there at night. Um, I, it was the most challenging thing that I'd experienced in my life, but in many ways, Larry, also one of the most deeply, deeply rewarding. What was your mom's name? Adelaide. Tell me about Adelaide. She was the kind of person who got up every day thinking, okay, what can I do today? What can I do to make things better? Whether that's for my family or for society or for the world. She was an awesome volunteer. She, you know, tutored at the county jail. She registered voters. She um, was a passionate sports fan. She was an incredible family organizer of events. You know, when she was uh, 96 years old in 2008, she made phone calls for Barack Obama. She picked, she would, she'd make calls and she'd say, my name is Adelaide Iverson, I'm 96 years old, and I've just lived through what I think was the worst presidency in my lifetime. So I'd like you to support Barack Obama. She was that kind of person. And she always wanted to be that person. And it was hard when she could no longer be. And part of what I began to understand about her, when she could be short and snappish and angry herself, was that she couldn't be who she had always been. And that's a hard thing to accept, both for that person, but for the person sometimes who is with her. Um, but she was an extraordinary person who taught me so much and who gave us all so much. And in the end, it was really an extraordinary opportunity to be with her during the last 10 years of her life. What did you learn about yourself and the family that um, you know, serves you today? I think that one of the great gifts that we can do for each other, whether it's our actual um, family in the sense of our, our, our loved ones that were our children, our our spouses, our parents, but really for each other is just to be there, to be present. Um, the caregivers who helped me taught me so much about what it means to be present because caregiving in the end is an intimate act. It's a physical act. It's all about touch. It's whether that's helping someone get dressed or helping someone in the bathroom, whether that's combing their hair or feeding them food but it's being present to them and, and saying, I know you're still somebody, you know, and, and to, be, to be there. That's the gift we give each other in that room you and I were just in at the, at the patient council. It's being here. We all took so much joy today in just being with each other. In the end, you know, 
that's caregiving is about showing up and and being there. It's a lesson I think we need to learn again and again and again for the rest of our lives, you know? I felt like I learned it and then I forget it and then I learn it again. But it gave me a window into that that I don't think I I would have realized quite as fully or as intimately if I'd not um, taken that 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 opportunity. And I think I think the other thing I'd say, Larry, is that my mom wasn't the only one who needed help. You know, yeah, I moved in to help her, but I think sometimes we're drawn to doing things that we need to do, even though we might not know why. And I think in the end, I didn't know this at the time, but I think I sort of placed myself where I needed to be too, to, to, to recognize some of my faults and flaws, to not be so sure of myself that I was always right about things. I think I needed that also. And I think to realize that, to realize that we can be strengthened by being present to others um, is, is it teaches us that there's more going on in life and that we're guided sometimes in ways we do not know um, and that there is great richness and human goodness in that experience. There are a lot of people like you in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s now who are taking care of their baby boomer parents um, and maybe just starting out. What advice would you give those folks who are just finding themselves in that position? I would say, first of all, listen to yourself. This is something you have to want to do. It can't be a should. It can't just be, well, I guess I gotta go do this. That's not sustainable. So if you want to, that's the first thing I think to identify. And then is to think about, well, well, how will I do without getting much sleep? How will I, what will I do if I feel like I can't do this anymore? What are the resources that I may need? How am I going to feel if it's on me and, and, and maybe my siblings aren't as much? There are a lot of questions that it's worth asking, none of which, by the way, did I ask myself. And maybe that's okay too, because then I just sort of leapt in and did it. But I think there are, there are good questions to ask. But I think it's also worth saying, well, what am I willing to learn about myself? What am I willing to put myself out there for? Am I prepared to, 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 to be challenged in ways I never imagined, but perhaps also be rewarded in ways I never dreamed? How can this maybe strengthen the love that I have in my family? How can it bring us actually closer together? Um, I think those are all things we're thinking about. But I would also say that someone who says in the end, I can't do this, that's all right too, because not everyone can. I was in a unique circumstance, you know, I was, I was single at the time. I was at a point in my career where I could. I lived 30 miles from my mom. I, I could make it happen. Not everyone is in those circumstances. I didn't have little kids. I didn't have, you know, there, there's, so no one should feel like everyone has to do this. I think that's really important too. But one thing I really will say that in, 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 
in the United States at least, we need to get so much better about what it means to provide loving care for our oldest citizens. We are nowhere close to understanding that. There is so much more we can do. There is so much more we have to be aware of. There are so many resources that are needed and there is so much more we need to do to honor professional caregivers who do this work and who are not compensated in the way they should. In 2019, according to the Brookings Institution, the average home care provider made $12 an hour, less, less than a living wage, less than the poverty line. I was able to do, my family was able to do much more than that because we had resources, because my folks had bought a house in Menlo Park, California in 1950 for $15,000. <laughs> so that by 2007, it was worth just a little bit more than that. We yeah. could borrow a ton of get, uh, money against that. But we need to do better in the United States than to say, our national plan is to make sure your parents bought a home in Silicon Valley in 1950 for $15,000. Then you'll be fine. We've got to do a lot better than that. We need to be able to, to invest in this and to invest in caregivers who provide loving support, who have so much skill. We don't honor those people. All the caregivers I had, Larry, were immigrant women of color. We think in this country that immigrants need to have specialized skills. Well, sure. But guess what those skills are? They aren't just how to, how, to, how to do software programming. They're things like, how do you keep someone from getting a bed sore? How do you, how do you transfer someone from, from bed to commode and back again? How do, you, how do you provide all of those kinds of tender, loving skills? We need those desperately. We need to honor them. So there is so much more that we need to do in this country to, to provide what our oldest deserve. Now, I know we know today that Caregivers also need an outlet and need, you know, whether it's time with a psychologist or, or, or a counselor. Or, did you have that kind of outlet? Well, I had a lot because, again, I could, I could t get more care over time. I started out being my mom's caregiver every night and all weekend, all, all weekend long. Over time, I would give myself a night off or two. Over time, a weekend off. And in the very last year and a half of her life, I was just there two nights a week and parts of four different days. So I had respite, but I had it, Larry, I had it about as good as any family caregiver can have because of the resources we were fortunate enough to have. Most family caregivers don't have that. My sister-in-law, um, you know, when she was a caregiver for my late brother, she never got a, a night off. I mean. We, again, we just have so much more. I was incredibly fortunate to be able to, to, to get away some, to be able to go out and go for a run, to spend time with my partner, now my wife, uh, Lynn. So many people don't have that. So I, I was incredibly fortunate. What do you look back on and go, God, that was a great experience? Well, one was becoming so close to the women caregivers who helped me, two in particular, two immigrant Americans, one originally from Tonga, one originally from Fiji. We became so close. We stay in touch to this day. In fact, I need to call one of them when we're done, who left me a voicemail message um, yesterday. Um, that was an extraordinary experience, life-changing um, in so many ways. I think the opportunity to be with my mom through so much time, to, to experience something I, I never could have um, before, to gain awareness to the challenges of caregiving, but what we could do to make loving care more possible. 
And there were just some wonderfully beautiful moments my mom and I shared together. She was a passionate sports fan. I was too. There's nothing like going to a football game with someone who's over 100 years old who says, get him, tackle that guy, tackle him. <laughs> you know, we had so many great and beautiful moments together. Um, and, and there were... And those are things that I, I never could have had if I hadn't been fortunate enough to be by her side. Why did you write the book? It helped me understand the experience because I could write about it, I could tell a story. It's just a story. It's a story about my mom and me and some extraordinary women who accompanied us. It's not a how-to book. It's a story about that experience, which I hope and believe can resonate with others, because I believe there is, there's truth in a story. And if we tell those, if we're able to tell those truths and they resonate with others, then that expands the conversation. And it allows us to begin to talk about things that I think we need to talk about in this country. And I was lucky enough to be able to, to do that. And it's, it's my hope that it will hopefully means something to others who are caregivers and maybe hopefully help spark a, a larger conversation in this country about, about caregiving and importance. Well, that sounds like your mom and what she couldn't do. <laughs> well, my mom and I were alike in a, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I once looked up at her when I was uh, two years old and she used to love to tell this story and said to her, Mom, we really like ourselves, don't we? <laughs> there, there was. We were both sort of, you know, we thought well of ourselves, and we and we liked to take charge, and that meant we butted heads sometimes. Um, but we had a special bond, um, and she's still with me in that way. I'm going to ask you a side, like a wild card question here. Do you think your career in broadcasting and interviewing people helped you become a better caregiver? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, Larry. Uh, I don't, I think it is not coincidental that in the time since I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's, I've had, you know, four of my most significant life-changing experiences. I made a film about Parkinson's for the PBS Frontline series, my father, my brother, and me. I made another film about Parkinson's, about Parkinson's and dance called Capturing Grace. I became a caregiver for my mom, and I wound up getting married. I don't, th and I and I think I became maybe a, a marginally um, kinder person, and and through those experiences, I, I don't think those are a coincidence. I really don't. I think that I was drawn through our Parkinson's experience to an awareness, maybe of stories that are worth telling, of, of paying attention to others. Um, I think that's, I, and, and, I, and I will, and I'm so grateful for that, but I, I actually don't believe that's a coincidence. Do you miss broadcast? No, because I've had, I've had the ability to take from that to, to listen, um, 
to be with others, to now tell this story in a different medium, to do work as you are now doing for the Michael J. Fox Foundation that drew upon those very same skills. Um, it's just allowed me to put those to work in a different way. I haven't missed behind being behind a microphone at all, but I think that's because I've been lucky and I've been able to do that in, in other ways. What's your favorite memory of broadcast? I will say two. One was making films and doing stories that I, th I think touched people and added a little bit to our common human condition. I think the other thing was it, it over time taught me to not only to listen, but to have the confidence that if a question occurred to me, that I should ask it. That even if it might sound like a dumb question, that meant that probably that same question was occurring to my audience as well. And so I should ask that question. And I think continuing to ask questions and to be willing to hear an answer that you might not want to hear or that might challenge you is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think broadcasting um, gave me that. Do you remember a specific time where you, you followed that instinct and it paid off? By way of answering, I will, I, will, I will tell a story of someone who I heard do this and that I always tried to remember to keep in the back of my mind. I was listening to an, an early edition of, um, an early in my broadcasting career to All Things Considered with Susan, Susan Stamberg. And she was interviewing a famous orchestra conductor can't remember who, and they were talking about all that was involved in leading a symphony orchestra. And then she said, but don't your arms ever get tired? And I thought that was like the <laughs> best question ever. Right. And so I've asked versions of, of that question. I remember, I remember once um, asking the governor of Wisconsin when I was interviewing him once, and I, and I said, are you a baseball fan? And, and he said, yeah, why? And I said, well... There's a baseball manager by the name of Tommy Lasorda who says that he bleeds Dodger blue. And it seems to me, Governor, that you bleed Badger red, which is the color of the state of Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. And it, he burst out laughing. But it was just this window into him that, that allowed us to see a different part of, of, of who he was. I think when we ask those questions, when we take a chance, we take a, make a, a, take a flyer on asking something, as you did a moment ago, you just never know where you, that might go. And, and opening those doors, I think, is worth doing. And that's what my, the joy I have in interviewing people is just that connection and, and just being curious and yeah. getting to know people. Yeah, yeah, and you never know what can happen. I remember once my uh, co-host and I were interviewing three Senate, U.S. Senate candidates. Um, in the primary for the Democratic nomination. And it was, you know, pretty clear that one person in particular wasn't going to win. And so we decided before the debate, we would ask them this, this particular Senate candidate this question, which was, if you don't win, who would you like to see win? And this candidate said, oh, well, I, I sure as hope if I don't win, it's, it's, Russ Feingold later went on to win. And it was the big headline story the next day. You know, yeah. this guy, this candidate, you know, supports 
Russ Feingold. Sometimes it's just worth asking those questions. One, one thing we wound up starting at where I used to work at Wisconsin Public Broadcasting was a post-election show called the Election Hangover Party. <laughs> and we featured the people who lost yeah. because they were incredibly candid. After they lost, you could ask questions that they never would have answered before. But we got some incredible interviews to talk to the losers. There's, there's a lot that can come from, from going at it that way. Well, and there's so many lessons that they've learned yeah. over the course yes. of the campaign. Yes. And they're now willing to share. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so fun. Dave Iverson, thank you for joining us on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast and for being a friend. Larry, thanks so much for being, being here. Winter Stars by Dave Iverson is available wherever you buy your books. When Life Gives You Parkinson's is a Curious Cast podcast production. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's? You're not alone. Parkinson.ca Thanks to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2023 in Barcelona, Spain. Make plans to be there with us. Go to WPC2023.org for details. The Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's Podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford, available on Apple Podcasts and MichaelJFox.org. PED Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, their partners, and friends united to the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. Join now at pdavengers.com. It's free, and we're doing good work. Be sure to check out the new events calendar. Spotlight YOPD, one of the only organizations in the world with a singular focus of raising awareness of young-onset Parkinson's disease. SpotlightYOPD.org. I'd really appreciate if you would share the podcast with someone. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience and raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising, keep listening, and we'll talk to you next time.